We'll be turning our attention to the book of Matthew now. Looking back at chapter 5 again. Turn with me there. Last week, we scratched the surface of the question, is God's law for today? And whether or not Christians should have any relationship to the law of God. And hopefully we all walked away nodding our heads in agreement, right? We should take God's law seriously because Jesus very obviously takes God's law seriously. Do you sound like the Lord Jesus when you talk about the law of God? He says, anyone, remember, who relaxes the least of these and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, I want us to think about this. When we read, for instance, the words in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, uh, when we read that where Moses is reminding God's people of who their God is, and he's instructing them to keep his commandments, to teach them diligently to their children, to to talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Do we read all of that as Christians? And do we say, yes, Lord? Or do we read it and say, man, I'm glad I'm a Christian and don't have to do all that. That sounds like work. The law certainly does still apply to Christians today. In some ways, it, it still applies, but it applies differently. And that's some of what I, I hope to be able to talk about this morning. In part two of the Sermon on the Law of God, we're zooming in on some specifics that I hope will offer some clarity about the law of God and what it does and doesn't do and what is abiding still for the Christian and what is not. So let's jump back into the passage where we, uh, where we were last week, where Jesus talks about the law of God in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, let us always be amazed that you care enough for us to give us your son, that we may know you, that you have given us your word, that we may know you. Lord, knowing you is the highest privilege we can know in life. God, I pray as I begin to preach that I would decrease and Christ would increase, bring forth the truth of your word. Guard me from error, God. May your word go out as an encouragement and a blessing to your people. May it both convict and comfort for your glory and for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's something we need to be aware of and reminded of, and I think it's where a lot of people get confused. It's not as though the law was how Jews were saved and grace is how Christians are saved. God never changed the way people could be reconciled to him. It has only ever been by the grace of God and faith in him that anyone has ever been saved. 
Many, 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 many Christians today, if you ask them how people were saved before Jesus came, they will say by keeping the law. That is incorrect. No one was ever saved by the law. So what is the law for? How does it apply? The best way I can think to unpack this is to look at two points this morning, okay? First, the three types of law, the three types of law and the three uses of the law. I'm not just making these up, by the way, okay? These, these divisions, they're, they're very helpful. If you, if you haven't heard of this before, uh, this has been around. I mean, theologians have, have, have been able to uh, see these three types of law, three uses of law for, for ages, and they're just helpful. They help us to understand what it is that we're trying to understand this morning. How does the law work? What, where's its place and purpose? So I'm going to lay out these two points, and each one, again, has three parts. The three types of law, the three uses of the law. Now, first, the three types of law. We have the ceremonial law, okay? We have the judicial law, and we have the moral law, okay? Ceremonial, judicial, moral. Second, second point, the three uses of the law. We have the pedagogical use. There's a spelling test afterwards. I'll be grading them. <laughs> the pedagogical use. Just in your notes there, y'all, you heard me talking with the children, put mirror. That'll be helpful to you. That's the mirror thing, the pedagogical use. And then there's the civil use of the law. That's the muzzle that you heard me talking about a moment ago. And then we have the normative or the, the moral use of the law, the map. All right. Now, point number two, the three types of law, ceremonial, judicial, and moral. The ceremonial law is what you think of when you read the Old Testament and you see stuff about clean and unclean and Levitical priests and sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. And then the judicial law is what you think of when you see the case law in the Bible, how to deal with criminal behavior between people and uh, how to bring about justice. And there's a lot of that in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and we'll look at a couple of those this morning. And then the moral law we're all familiar with that we just read is the Ten Commandments, right? Now, here's something to remember, and this will come up again later. You, you have to recognize that... The Ten Commandments, the moral law, existed before it was written down on stone tablets. All right? It, it, this is fixed into the created order because it reflects the character of God who made it. All right? We'll look at these in order, but first realize two things, and we mentioned this last week. All of these laws are summarized in Jesus' statement, love God and love neighbor. These laws are the love of God and the love of neighbor enlarged to show detail, okay? They're, they're explicit detail. Now let's go through them. Ceremonial. Be honest. Have you ever read Leviticus and wanted to just maybe skip ahead a little bit? Have you ever been in the book of Leviticus and thought to yourself, what in the world is going on here? What, what's, what, what's happening here? Why, why is this in here? What, why all the detail? Here's why, okay? Here's why. Read Leviticus with fresh eyes. Here's why. God was communicating something to his people they could not afford to miss. And here's the message he was trying to get across that God was saying to his people. Me and you are not okay. We, we have a problem here. We have beef between us. God is telling his people, I cannot dwell with mankind because of sin. 
I cast you out of the garden and out of my presence because of your sin, and we can have nothing to do with one another until that's taken care of. This is a loud and clear message repeated to God's people. And so what we see in the, ceremon in the ceremonial laws, they, they have to do with holiness and, and the sacrificial system. So let's talk about holiness for just a second, okay? Why couldn't they eat shrimp and bacon? Y'all ever, ever hear people, you know, when they're talking... People who don't care anything about the Bible that, that point back to you and say, oh, you're hypocrites, you know. Well, if you believe in God and believe his law is true and all that stuff about homosexuality and otherwise, then you have to believe that you can't eat shellfish and you can't eat bacon and you, you can't wear clothes with mixed fibers. Hopefully this will help us get into that a little bit this morning, okay? Why couldn't they do it? Was it, was it bad then and it's good now? Did God change his mind about that stuff? No. It was because their pagan neighbors did, and God didn't want them to do anything that their pagan neighbors did. He wanted them to know that they were holy and set apart, that they were distinct. Why couldn't their cattle breed with a different kind or sow two kinds of seed in one field? Why couldn't they wear clothes made with two kinds of material? They were not to blend with the nations around them or to become like them. They were not to intermarry with them. They were not to give their sons to their daughters, and they were not uh, you know, allowed to have their sons take wives for themselves from other tribes and things. They were to be set apart and distinct. So why all these seemingly strange and seemingly arbitrary or, or seemingly uh, capricious laws? Because God wanted them to know every time they got dressed, every time they did their work, every time that they ate a meal, that they were set apart for God and his purposes. Do not blend with the nations around you. Don't be like them. When you begin to understand that, you can look at passages like Leviticus chapter 9 and, and verse 28 and, and have some context. Okay, I'm going to read that for you. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Those of you with tattoos are squirming in your seat a little. Right? <laughs> Not this guy. He knows where I'm going. <laughs> People in surrounding nations at this time, right, who worshipped other gods, had certain rituals and practices that were part of their worship of their gods, which included cutting themselves. They would summon their gods and call upon them by shedding their own blood. And you can see this really clearly in 1 Kings chapter 18, this famous scene of Elijah, you know, standing off with the prophets of Baal. They're crying out to their God. They're pleading with their God to intervene on their behalf. I'm going to read just a piece of that. Verse 28 of that chapter says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So this practice, it was a custom of the of the people of the, the, that the people of God were not to associate themselves with. They weren't supposed to do that. All right, now, side note here, okay, side note. Every other religion's God, in some form or fashion, demands you bleed for it. Your religion is the only one with a God who literally bleeds for you. Don't, don't miss that. Don't miss that. The ceremonial law had to do with cleanness, purity, sacrifice. 
What God was communicating to his people through the ceremonial law was Israel's need to be different and set apart from the nations around them in order to bring about his redemptive purposes in the earth and to communicate to them that they were cut off from God. They needed to know. They needed to know we're not okay. Something needs to be done for you about this. So he gave them regular practices and patterns of life that preached to them their need of a redeemer. So that's what the sacrificial system was about. It was the karate kid. Don't worry, I won't leave you hanging. Have you, you remember seeing the original though, Daniel's son? What's he doing, right? He's painting the fence, you know, wax on, wax off, sand the floor, you know, seemingly unimportant things that all of a sudden now really matter in the future. All of a sudden they, they, they count for something. He sees the big picture. You see how that's the same? Going through some of these, these, these practices and these things, they, they pointed to something else. To Christ. So the ceremonial law was one type of law that Christ fulfills. He says in verse 17, do not think I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we said last week, fulfill doesn't mean put to bed. It means to, to carry to completion. It's an error to say, hold on tight to this. It's an error to say that the ceremonial law has nothing to do with the Christian. It absolutely does. We still need a priest. And we have one. A great high priest who intercedes for his people continually. His name is Jesus. We aren't rid of our need for a mediator. We just needed a better one. Moses wouldn't do. And we have one now, Jesus. He is our mediator. There's but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We still need a sacrifice. The wages for our sin, what we earn, is death. And Jesus, our great high priest, not only offered the sacrifice on behalf of his people, but he was the sacrifice. He was the chef and the meal. How about a temple? We still need a temple? We still need a temple? You betcha. We still need a temple where God would be pleased to come and dwell with his people. And Jesus is the only way that God can be present with us and that we can have a relationship with him. And we don't have time to go through all of this this morning, but I can tell you where you can see these connections between the Old Testament and the ceremonial law and what they pointed to and its fulfillment in Christ. It's all there in the book of Hebrews. It'd be an excellent place for you to go to look at all that. It's all there. So the ceremonial law wasn't done away with. It wasn't wiped off the table. It's not insignificant for Christians. It's very much significant because while the practices aren't the same, the principle is there. We were not right with God. God could not dwell among us because of sin. Sin had to be atoned for and we need a mediator between us and our holy and awesome God. It's important to understand the continuity here, right? There's discontinuity, yes, but we got to be able to peek at the, at the continuity because it helps us get a fuller picture of, of, of Jesus and what he's accomplished for us in salvation. All right, now the judicial law. Next type. Wasn't all that just for the nation of Israel? Yes and no. Right? Yes, because the people of God at that time were one nation made up of one kind of people in one specific geographic location. And one of the things that we recognize 
about the new covenant is it's all tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations. Yes? But what was the, what was the purpose of the judicial law? What's the principle there? Love for neighbor. Love for neighbor. Well, that's still a thing, isn't it? Jesus says so. The case laws we read in Exodus, some in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, are case-by-case bases of how to do that. How to love your neighbor in this particular circumstance. How to uphold justice, how to practice righteousness in this circumstance. Now, this is sticky. I'm going to try to make this as clear as possible and to the point for us this morning. It's, it's easy to get in the weeds here. It's something I'd be happy to talk about in, in a group discussion or a Bible study or otherwise. Um, but here's the point I want to make. God is holy. A holy God cannot have unholy laws. God's law is holy. All of it. All of it. You can't read the Old Testament judicial laws and say, well, that seems severe. I'm, I'm glad, uh, I sure am glad God isn't as angry now as he was then. We don't see a, a, a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New Testament. God, God, didn't, God didn't have an attitude adjustment between Testament. He didn't need one. We did. God is always angry with sin, and sin always deserves death and the wrath of God. That's what it deserves. It's only when we begin to think too highly of ourselves or we begin to think too little of God's holiness that we can look at the severity of his commands in the Old Testament and cry foul. It's only when we think too highly of ourselves and we think too little of God's holiness. When we think of sins as oopsie-daisies, instead of deserving the wrath of a holy God. God's law is good. It was then, it is now. The question is, how does it apply, right? Well, one thing we can't say is that it doesn't apply at all or that it shouldn't. Can't say that. If we look at God's judicial laws revealed to us, right, his standard for upholding justice, his program for the protection of citizens and for loving neighbor, what, 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 do, you, what do you want to replace it with? What do you want to put in its place? I mean, if not this, then what? Are we a law unto ourselves? Are we as fallen creatures to be consulted regarding justice? No, we, we, I mean, we don't even know what justice really is without first taking a look at God and his law. He is the standard, not us. Justice is not determined by us. It's recognized by us. It's revealed to us and recognized by us. So here's a few examples of what this looks like, okay? I brought this up in our, our community group last week. Actually, Blake brought it up, and then we talked a little bit about it. What is the punish, what's the just punishment for theft? I'm posing that as a question. You don't have an answer, but just, just think about it for a second. What's, what's the just way to deal with theft? We have to deal with it. What's the right way to do it? Cut his hand off? Does it again? Cut the other one off. Won't do that again. Add options. Is that, is that just? It's, I mean, it's not. Okay, spoiler alert. It's not. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that's not just? Because law, God's law reveals it to us. Because he says so. 
Chopping someone's hand off in another country where it's legal doesn't make it just over there. Justice is not determined by cultural acceptance. Justice is defined by God. Let me show you something beautiful here, okay, to have a beautiful picture of, of God's law. Here's how it works. It's always about making the victim whole. It's always about making the victim whole. Does it deter criminal behavior? Sure, yeah. It's, it's a muzzle, right? We'll get there. It deters criminal behavior, but the thrust of the judicial law is about reconciliation and restoration, about setting things right, about making the victim whole. In the case of theft, the thief must make restitution. He must pay back what he stole and then some. And if he can't, he works off his debt as an indentured servant for the person that he committed the crime against, that he stole from. That's justice. That's justice. Not throwing him in jail and then stealing from taxpayers to give him room and board while he pays off his debt to society. His debt wasn't to society. The, the victim was the man that was stolen from. And many times that person's left empty-handed. There's no restitution there. God's law is wise. It is good. And it's good we don't chop people's hands off for stealing things. That's a good thing. We could do better. We could do better, and God's ways are always better. Take the extreme cases of rape and murder, for instance. What's justice look like there? Death. The victim cannot be made whole in those cases. No restitution can be made. Something was taken from them that cannot be returned. And so the, the price to pay is life for life. That's what God's word says. Now, we can pretend we're more merciful than God if we want to. But we will just be pretending. But preacher, how can you say that? Don't you know, don't you know that innocent people have been wrongly accused and, and been killed under the death penalty? Don't you know how wrong that is? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Because that's why in God's law, it says the courts are not to receive testimony unless there are two to three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15. If you can't be that sure, then no death penalty. Right? Problem solved. Innocent people don't get penalized. One witness is not enough to convict someone of a crime. And this is the kicker. If you bear witness falsely about your, about your neighbor, if you lie against your neighbor... You get the punishment they would have gotten. Also Deuteronomy 19. Let me, let me read you that short section, okay? A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in any connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity 
It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That would certainly clear up some things in our courts today, wouldn't it? Might tighten some things up. Don't we like, don't we like this stuff, though? Don't we like innocent until proven guilty? You like that? We didn't make that up, y'all. That's God's law. We like that part. Don't we like punishments fitting the crime? Where do we get that principle? Thank God and his word. That's where we get that principle. And we know it's right, don't we? Believer and unbeliever alike, we want a fair shake. God knows what justice is. So should we scrap it and just come up with our own? Should we scrap his law and start from scratch and figure out our own stuff? Because none, none of this really matters to us anymore. Or would we be wise to model ours after his? Which would be better for the governance of the people that God has made in his own image, whom we are instructed to love as ourselves? So as I said before, there's continuity and there's discontinuity. We have to be clear about that. There's some changes in applications, okay? But the principle is still all there. The Westminster divines who crafted our confession understood this very well. And you can read about this in chapter 19 of the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. They talk about how, yes, the judicial laws were for the nation state of Israel, where the church was the state. But then they, they, they talk about how the general equity of those laws still applies, they were wise in their choice of words and how they dealt with that, because as I said before, it's sticky. Let me give you what I think is the best and probably most popular example of that, or maybe one of the more cited examples of this. Read Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. I'm not going to wait. For, you can flip there if you want to. I'm not going to wait for you. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. That may sound strange to us. But back then, people used to hang out on the rooftops. That was like your patio. That's where you'd go and chill out with your friends. And they were commanded to build a railing around it so that no one would fall off. Why? Is this another one of those silly, arbitrary Old Testament laws where, man, God was a meanie, just making them jump through hoops all the time. No, love of neighbor. Love of neighbor was why he commanded that. Now, does that law apply today? I don't have a parapet around my roof, y'all. Do I need to run home this afternoon and put one up real quick so I can be in compliance with God's law? No. But you know what? If I have a pool in my backyard, I should put a fence around that so the neighbor children don't stumble in and drown. Right? That's the general equity principle of that law being applied today. And we have laws like that today, don't we? And those laws are good. How do we know? Because God's law is good. Anywhere we have laws that reflect these principles, we can say those are good laws. How do we know they're good? Because, well, because they, best we can tell, there's, there's an association here. We can see that this is the way that we bring this about today. And that's, that's using God's law as a, as a guide and a, and a to help us figure these things out for ourselves. We're not a law unto ourselves. Now, anywhere we see laws that, are, that run counter to God's law, 
we can objectively say those are not good laws. Can we not? God is the measuring stick. His word is our measuring stick. That's how we know righteousness and unrighteousness. It's how we know good and evil. So there is a difference between the old covenant and the new in terms of judicial law, but the principle remains is the point, okay? It's not like all that old stuff is bad and done away with. There's wisdom in it. And when we read about how the coming Messiah would bring forth justice, as we do all throughout the Old Testament, they couldn't keep their mouths shut about it. This Messiah that's coming, he will bring forth justice in the earth. What do we think he was talking about? What might it look like? I bet we'd get a good idea by reading about what God's word says about justice and his law. All right, now the moral law. We'll spend less time on this because it's the one that's the most familiar, okay? The Ten Commandments. One thing I'll mention here again, as I said before, the Ten Commandments are fixed into the created order. It's not like one day God was like, golly, these guys, these are, they're off the chain. We're going to have to fix this up. I'm going to come up with some laws for them. You know, he didn't dream this up on Mount Sinai when he wrote them down on tablets. This is fixed into the created order. He wrote down for his people what was already the case, in sum, he says, this is how you love God and love neighbor. And you can look at, you know, how, how the first four commands mostly have to do with our vertical relationship, don't they? You've heard this before. The first four commandments are, are, are really about us and, and God. And we have to start there before we can even get to the human thing, right? But then the last six are about our relationships with one another. But these 10 commandments, this in sum is how you love God, love neighbor, Right? No other gods before me. Worship me my way, not your way. Do not take my name in vain. Honor my Sabbath. Keep it holy. It's a thing. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. That we're supposed to do that. Yes? We're, we're supposed to do that. I mean, which one you want to get, which one you want to get rid of? Which one you want to do away with? The reality is you do away with one, you do away with them all. Now, can any one of us keep these commandments perfectly? Not on our best day. We said last week, that's why the lawgiver had to be the law keeper to obey for us. We have all sinned against a holy and righteous God. We all deserve his wrath as punishment. And we know that Christ fulfilling the law for us means we are forgiven for breaking God's law. But we are also enabled by his spirit to obey it. You see? And it's our delight to keep it. We meditate upon it. It is sweet to us because our love of God looks like obedience to God. Our love for God looks like obedience to God. That's not, that's not a clever, you know, uh, something to tweet out this afternoon. That's what God's word says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We said that last week. All right, now moving on. We're going to uses of the law. Three uses of the law. Don't worry. This part goes quickly, okay? You're like, he's just starting on point number two. It'll be shorter. A simple way to remember this, as we said before, is the law is 
the law is, come on, you can talk, it's okay, all right? The law is, the children know, the law is a map. There you go. The law is a mirror, the law is a muzzle, the law is a map. So we have first the, the pedagogical use of the law. Spelling tests are due at the end of the sermon. The law is a mirror that shows us what we are in the sight of God, what we truly are. We think we're basically good. We know we make mistakes. God's law shows us you are not good. Okay? It's a mirror. The law reveals sin in us. It shows us we are guilty of breaking God's law. And it shows us our need for a savior. And so this use of the law, it drives us to Christ. It is pedagogical. It teaches us who we are and shows us what we need. And what we find we need is forgiveness. We need forgiveness for sin. We need atonement for sin. We need a redeemer. So that's, the, that's one use of the law. The next use is the civil use, the muzzle, okay? The law restrains evil. What a what a marvelous and gracious providence of God that is. That he restrains evil in us. He does it for the good of people. We talked about that a lot a minute ago in the judicial law stuff. Instructions on how to curb or muzzle evil. Now the law, we got to talk about what the law can and can't do. I promise we would do that, okay? What the law can't do is change evil hearts. It can't do it. But what it does, to some extent, is it inhibits or muzzles lawlessness in the Christian and the non-Christian alike. It protects the righteous from the unjust. All right, now the third one is the normative or the moral use of the law. This is the, uh, this is the map. This is the pattern of behavior God expects from his image bearers. It is a guide for the Christian that norms and shapes us into what God desires for us to be. Now it's the Holy Spirit ultimately that does the shaping, right? He sanctifies us. But he uses the law as our map and he shows us what is pleasing to God so that we can stay in bounds. That is good for us. That's the third use of the law. It is abiding for the Christian today because it's only through the law that we know what sin is and what is sin but lawlessness. That's what it is. That's how it's defined, 1 John chapter 3. What is sin but lawlessness? So now the question we started with was, is God's law for today? So I would ask you, is it? Hopefully we can all say yes. But more importantly, hopefully we can know what we mean when we say it, right? Hopefully we can know what we mean when we say it. Yes, it's holy and it's wise and it's good. It always has been. It always will be. It wasn't just good for a season and it's bad now. It wasn't just useful then and isn't now. It wasn't the way that people were saved in the Old Testament. Now people are saved through Jesus in the New Testament. People have only ever been saved through Jesus. There's never been any other way. The ceremonial laws, summing up here, the ceremonial laws pointed to our need for a priest, a sacrifice, our need to be made clean, and to have a place where we could meet with God. And we have it. 
His name is Jesus. Our need for those things didn't go away. It was fulfilled. Do you see? You know, when when you're hungry, God doesn't satisfy your hunger by taking away your hunger. He feeds you. That's, That's fulfilling. The judicial law showed us God's righteous standard of justice and how seriously he takes sin and how much he cares for victims, how much he cares about restitution being made. He shows us how to love God and love neighbor in the Ten Commandments and gives us examples of how that looks. And so we understand this principle and how it applies for the good of the people. God shows us what he's like in his law and so that we can know we are to be like him. That's his will for us as his image bearers. He shows us what he is like and his will for us is to be like him. So yes, the law is good. It is good for today because God is the same. He never changes. He was good yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. His holiness and his wisdom and his love for the world that he came to redeem shines through his law for us. We love it. Not because it's a bridge or a ladder to God, but we love it because we can see that he cares enough about us to guide us, to govern us, to guard us and protect us. God cares for his creatures. You are not under the condemnation of the law, Christian, and never will be. That has to be said clearly. You are not under condemnation of the law and never will be. But that doesn't mean it's to be disregarded. You have a relationship to the law as a Christian, and it is a good one. You have Jesus to thank for that. That your relationship to the law of God is a good one. And you can thank him by observing his statutes, by being careful to walk in his ways. Your love for him looks like obedience to him. And the Holy Spirit, you can trust this. The Holy Spirit will never leave you. He will never leave you. He will teach you. He will guide you. He will keep you, and he will bring to completion the good work that was begun in you for his glory and for your benefit, for the benefit of your family, for for the benefit of your children's children, for the benefit of all those you meet, to love God and love neighbor. Praise his holy name. Let's pray. Father, you are just and holy in all your ways. God, there's a reason the psalmist exclaims with joy and awe and wonder as he meditates on your law. You are on display for us in your law. Your character, your goodness, your infinite wisdom. How can we be anything other than completely awestruck when we see how glorious you are? We love you, Lord, and I ask that as we prepare to leave this morning, we would see the benefits of redemption we have received in Jesus and our right standing with you because of him. May we see your law as a good teacher and a companion to us and not an obstacle or an enemy pursuing us. It's not a nosy, disapproving neighbor or a nagging to-do list. It is truly a blueprint of righteousness for us that is a blessing to us. Lord, we stand humbled by it. We are thankful for it. 
We love you, Father, and ask this in all of our prayers in the name of your Son, our lawgiver and lawkeeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.